You love technology, you love your privacy, and you cherish freedom and the Constitution. This is our culture and our way of life, and it's under attack from powers that be who want to know all that we do while we know very little of what they do. Restore the Fourth is an organization seeking to restore balance, and we need your help. Please head to RestoreTheFourth.com slash donate to help support our work. That's RestoreTheNumber4TH.com slash donate. Thank you for your support. Your government doesn't feel you can be trusted with a powerful weapon, your thoughts. Encryption is ammunition, and in the battle to keep your thoughts your own, it's your right to have military grade. This is Privacy Patriots episode number three, recorded on December 5th, 2016. The Patriots and its active members have received no legal instruments requiring us to turn over any information since our last podcast dated November 19th, 2016. My name is Chuck. And I'm Fong. And welcome to the Privacy Patriots Podcast, the official podcast of Restore the Fourth. So we've got a lot for you this episode. A little later on, we're going to be joined by Zucky Munyan from Restore the Fourth San Francisco, who's going to talk to us about all that they've done in the last few years to act locally against surveillance and fight for encryption. Uh, it's also going to give us a little wrap-up about the big headline this week, which is Rule 41, which, in short, is going to allow the FBI to hack into any of our computers. So we're bellering the lead a bit this week, not talking about Rule 41 right off the bat, but there are some other news items going on this week. The FBI gained some other powers this week uh, in a less formal way. Uh, they got a hold of access to the quote-unquote Twitter firehose we're talking about here is uh, just the raw data stream through Twitter's API, something that theoretically was unavailable to them. Twitter has a policy such that their data is not to be used for surveillance purposes. But playing the old middleman trick, they've signed a deal, the FBI has signed a deal with a company called Data Miner and they already had products that uh, had access to Twitter's API, and they're in turn offering it by way of a software product that uh, they've cut a deal with the FBI to, to purchase. So what do we think about this? I mean, basically, the FBI can process all that is posted to Twitter in real time. That's the bottom line of it. Well, I suppose at the heart of it, what we do have to keep in mind about Twitter, and we have to keep this in mind about all social networks, is that primarily, first and foremost, these are publication platforms. So what you put on Twitter in the first place is something is you should not consider anything you put on Twitter to be private. Now, I'm, I'm not a twit myself, so I don't actually, <laughs> I couldn't think of a better word for it. I'm not a twit myself, so I don't actually have any idea whether or not there's any sort of a private message facility in there. It wouldn't surprise me if there was. No, there is direct messaging. Is. And, you know, from what I've read up on this deal, maybe a listener could write it and answer this. Uh, there is that question of, are direct messages included in this direct feed or fire hose, as they're calling it? Yeah, I think it's a very important question because that sort of speaks to the ethics of the whole thing. 
And I always make that delineation between broadcasting and methods of one-to-one communication or what ostensibly should be one-to-one communication. There are different expectations. Uh, I think as social media has arisen, a lot of people haven't really kind of set the boundaries that you really should between what you're broadcasting publicly <laughs> and what you're writing, you know, to your spouse or your... I think there's a lot of truth to that. I've mentioned before that I, I have done work as a process server and... Uh, one of the things that has been very helpful in finding my my various uh i guess targets has been uh, facebook you know it, i've been able to go on facebook find them find out some information about where they live what they look like etc yeah. um so you were doing that was, back in the facebook age yeah yeah well i mean I, I would say the facebook age hasn't really hasn't really ended as far as i can see yeah you know um but, but it yeah, wasn't absolutely. prior to the to social media. You're thinking phenomenon. of MySpace, I think. Yeah. No, but I'm saying your gig as a process server was after the the rise of. Oh yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah, I thought absolutely. it was way back. Way no, back. no, no, no. Yeah. This is something I've something I've done mostly in the last uh, six or seven years. Oh, okay. And it's just an occasional thing. Usually, it's been because somebody I know needs needs to serve somebody. Yeah, you know, that sort of thing. <laughs> you know, the the idea to to go that particular route I got from listening to uh, some of the talks that Steve Rambaum has given at the Hope conferences. Yeah. Uh, now, Steve Rambaum, for those of you who do not know of him, is a private detective. Yeah. Uh, he's based out of New York City. And his specific words about Facebook are, if you are posting all of your information on there, thank you very much. <laughs> Makes his job So we can apply the easier. same thing to Twitter. Which I is... would think so, yeah. What we broadcast through the various social yeah. media, we, we've let go of. And in, in, yeah, in all fairness, what you're publishing, what you're broadcasting is fair game. That said, when you get into, we'll call it non-private information, there does arise new questions of not privacy per se, but questions of efficiency. You know, does a a new phenomena arise when, in particular, government and law enforcement now can be more efficient at discovering and processing public information? Sure, of course. Is there a threshold within that that we can say, hey, as a society, maybe we don't want to, we kind of want to, like, not turn it up to a eleven. Yeah, and we we kind of touched on this a couple episodes ago when we were talking about ALPRs. Yes. And um, the the thing in this particular case, yes, you you could have somebody sitting in front of a, a web browser poking at Twitter and seeing what people are saying, and that's one thing. Uh, another thing you could have is is have a computer going out and crawling it, you know, in, in the manner that Google or or any of your other you know major search engines would do, looking for things of interest, and that's that's another level. However, in this particular case, by giving access to this company, and this company is called Data Miner, that's with uh, in the, in a very Web 3.0 manner, that is Data Miner without an E before <laughs> the R. What they have access to is without the presentation layer, without uh, the stuff that makes uh, Twitter uh, human-readable, because it doesn't need to be human-readable, and that 
human readable layer that we normally look at things through actually impedes the ability of computers to process this information. So we've made it that much more efficient yeah. by uh, giving data miner access to Twitter's yeah. APIs. But the direct message question aside, as far as we know, the FBI is not being given access to anything that you and I couldn't access anyway. No, they, it's the same access as far as I can see. The whole question is is uh, whether or not we've we've breached a level of efficiency where it's it's no longer cool. Here's my next question though. If Twitter has this standing policy in theory that they don't allow their data at least through this stream or firehose to be used for surveillance purposes, we have a middleman question here where data miner ostensibly had brokered access to the fire hose for A, B, and C products that they offered that were not in a law enforcement context, whatever they were. I'm not familiar with them. But now they're using it for X, Y, and Z law enforcement applications. Could Twitter turn around and say, hey, we're going to revoke your access to the API and to the fire hose because this is not what we intended and you're kind of well i think getting around it i think on one level we we'd have to say yes yeah, certainly they can do that because uh you know twitter is private property and as such it's it it's up to twitter to decide what is an acceptable use of twitter and uh i'm sure now you know like anything else i have not read their their terms, terms of, of use and their <laughs> privacy yeah. policy and so yeah. on but if we get to the bottom of it i'm sure there's a clause in there that says we can change this policy at any time that we see fit but ultimately what you're describing is an affect of the walled garden phenomena of social media basically uh you know unlike email where we're kind of transmitting messages to different decentralized servers. We're all kind of just putting all of our social media up on one or two bulletin boards for other people to then view that same bulletin board, but it all exists in one place and it happens to be these private entities that could kind of do whatever they see fit. Well, that's that's true. And, and of course, these private entities would have access to, well, by these private entities, do you mean the, the social media Companies. platform? Yeah, yeah okay. Twitter, Facebook. So, so they, they have uh, the ability to grant and revoke and, and yeah. redesign and limit and whatever else they feel like doing. Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, I have seen at least one social media platform, and it wasn't a very well-known one. It was called the Experience Project that just flat out closed up shop. Boom, uh, gone. Wasn't you know, familiar with that. Now all of, the, all of the, the various stories that people had posted on that, and there were a fair number of them, nowhere near the, the probably orders of magnitude smaller than Facebook, but you know, all of the stories and things that people have posted on there are just not available anymore. Yeah. Just poof, just appeared disappeared in a, a cloud of logic well i'm curious to see what does happen with this because i know there was precedent specifically for the fire hose <laughs> this api kind of interfaced all of twitter's data was revoked to a an operation that was running an automated twitter account let's say that's how <laughs> it ultimately manifested and what it would do it was it would kind of scan for i guess they would cherry pick certain public figures world leaders politicians and keep an eye on their twitter accounts 
And if they noticed that any of them deleted a tweet, they would then note that fact and then go back and retrieve the content of the tweet <laughs> and then repost retweet a it. quoted, yeah, retweet it under their name. But it was all done through an automated process. And I think on the back end, it was coming through this API. And Twitter actually revoked it on the grounds that they felt that even if it's a world leader, public figure, politician, if they decide to delete a tweet that deleting a post is an act of free speech in itself well and should be preserved yeah i suppose there's some truth to that but i mean you, you could go pretty deep down that rabbit hole the immediate thing that comes to mind right after that is that if you are granting free speech rights and you are granting the right to delete your printed words as part of that free speech right you can't also prevent somebody else from rewriting those very same words. <laughs> you know, it's not as though the it's not as though there's a copyright on the individual words, <laughs> nor is there a copyright like well, there might be a copyright on the sequence. Copyright law is kind of like, <laughs> kind of that way. Maybe but. if you change every seventh word, <laughs> or dis good, or disavow it, or something like that. <laughs> So we'll see how that pans out. So in other news, journalist slash hacktivist Barrett Brown was released from jail this week. You may remember him for his involvement with the Stratford leak that came out through WikiLeaks a number of years ago. Yeah, that was like 2011, I think, yeah. And basically he was one of the people in the chain that leaked that information out via some anonymous hackers that obtained the information. And then ultimately it was furnished to WikiLeaks where it was distributed, not unlike every other leak that they're known for. But another example that brings to light the unclear line between the guerrilla journalism of hacktivism and what maybe the authorities would consider espionage because uh, what, what kind of information got leaked in the Stratford files this was uh, like a private intelligence contractor yeah it was I think the analogy that I would draw I would say Stratford was kind of to the corporate world what a private investigator would be to the individual world so this is a company that would go out and research things and sometimes maybe cross a few ethical lines you know not that that was something that would ever happen in the corporate world but you know what i'm saying they build themselves as a geopolitical intelligence and consulting firm and uh, they have a number of various books and media and such that they publish and mostly their their funding comes from subscriptions to their website so their customers were actually compromised, correct? Yeah, that's actually kind of interesting. The hack that took place there, they got uh, email addresses, credit card data, and uh, a few other things. But here's the part that I find the most interesting about it is that for a company that, that bills itself as being in the security industry, they really kind of botched this one because apparently they were storing uh, credit card data in their database uh unencrypted in plain text plain text yeah <laughs> and and uh, uh likewise with uh passwords and such and I, I think that that was kind of weak actually here's this great quote this is on cnn was uh, uh an embarrassing mistake for a company specializing in security yeah yeah the the thing of it is it does kind of draw an interesting question to mind where is the line drawn between journalism and espionage? What is WikiLeaks? 
Yeah. Is, is it a journalism site? Is it a uh, or is it a, an espionage site? And I think it really depends on whether or not it's your particular ox that got gored. Yeah. Well, after this election, I kind of I feel <laughs> like they think they're Breitbart all of a sudden because the WikiLeaks was known for just releasing raw information and letting other journalists make of it what they will. And all of a sudden, in the latter half of this election, Julian Assange is broadcasting all sorts of opinions about this and that. And I almost, that was very, kind of disappointing to me because. I have to wonder though, has. No, has he actually resurfaced? I know he was actually cut off for them from the net for a while there. And yeah, I'm wondering I hadn't if uh, followed the timeline there. Um, I, I I feel like it it's still questionable what his status is. I don't know if it uh, began to be questionable the moment that his internet was cut. Um, I'm not sure if he gained internet back for a little while or <laughs> i don't know i have read that that assange has been having delusions and hallucinations from just being stuck inside of yeah, a building of for four years so who knows what's going on well i mean you know we've all we're all familiar with yeah. cabin fever i mean we live in yeah. the great northeast here we we've, yeah. we've experienced cabin fever well barrett brown experienced 63 months of cabin fever <laughs> is uh, i don't know if that's what the judge called it but now he's out so uh one of the the smaller players in the WikiLeak story uh is uh free well he's free he's free <laughs> to do free to do what, he, what wants. he wants any old time uh-huh. i knew you were going there <laughs> And lastly this week, Brewster Kale, who is the founder of the Internet Archive, i.e. the Wayback Machine, I think is how I think we're that's mostly the most, uh, the most familiar well with it. Yeah, yeah the, the site that attempts to cache the entire Internet. The and, site that still has got my, my website from 1999 <laughs> on it. But um, he came out and had some revealing things to share about NSLs, national security letters, and uh, he was able to reveal that the Internet Archive received an NSL back in 2007, initially, and but the Internet Archive was able to push back against the FBI who served this. Um, and, you know, to reiterate, the national security letter comes with an Again. everlasting gag order yeah. where you can't talk about it. You theoretically can only talk about it with your lawyer. You couldn't even legally. You couldn't even talk to your spouse about it. Yeah, I know. And it's you know. apparently, you know, like I said before, there was even initially some question about if you could even talk to a lawyer about it. Really? Yeah. Yeah. But I, I, I gather that was resolved pretty quickly. So, uh, as is the case, the typically the. This NSL was looking for specific information about a user on the site of some sort. And um, I guess back then he, he was able to push back against the FBI with the help of the American Civil Liberties Union and the EFF, the Electronic Frontier Foundation. And through a secret lawsuit, they were able to get the FBI to back down. But the archive has since received a new NSL in recent times, and they simply sent a nasty gram back to the FBI this time, and apparently that was enough to... It essentially, get, it said, are you sure you really want to do this? Don't you remember do you want to go through this, this once again? before? Yeah. 
And I, I mean, guess... and a big, I mean, the Internet Archive seems like the worst uh, worst choice of who to pick a fight with when it comes <laughs> to, down to, you know, we've got a longer memory than you do. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I guess in the wake of all this, they were able to publish an uh, actual, you know, re- I'll bet redacted, but an actual copy of the, the National Security Letter, which um, we've got a link to the Intercept article on here where you can see it. And I, and I mean, that's actually the beautiful thing uh, about, uh, there, there's a couple of sites that do this. Uh, Internet Archive is one of them. Um, the Internet Archive has got a really manic drive to archive and publish everything. Yeah, yeah. It's it's a beautiful thing. I mean, it's it's a wonderful resource. There's all kinds of uh, if movies. If you watch that show, Hoarders, they have nothing on them. Yeah. <laughs> 30 petabytes, from what I understand, is how much data these guys carry. Okay. Isn't that insane? Well, when you have multiple iterations of the entire internet, <laughs> what are you going to expect? I'm sure they just still de- store deltas or something like that, but yes. <laughs> but the thing that I was getting at is uh, because of the fact that they have this tendency to want to collect and, and publish everything, it's obviously of an academic interest to want to show people what the NSL looks like. Yeah. And the Internet Archive is in exactly that business of making things that are of academic interest or even just historical interest or, for that matter, even no interest at all available to anybody that wants to see them. I'd be particularly interested in going back and looking at a snapshot of the FBI's website where it once encouraged you to use encryption on your devices to <laughs> protect yourself. And, and I bet that's in there somewhere. <laughs> you know, the the thing that I know uh, from hearing these folks talk about this stuff too is they also have an interest in maintaining their own transparency. Again, with an almost manic uh, level of uh, adeptness. And uh, to that extent, it actually kind of reminds me of another interesting site, which is uh, Cryptome.org. And they have this habit of any legal anything that they receive, they immediately turn right around and publish on the front page of their website. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's really kind of really kind of cool to watch. Yeah. I think if I got an NSL, I would immediately go get it silkscreened on a T-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> Wear it around town. Yeah, call it free speech. <laughs> Why not? It worked for encryption algorithms back in the day. Yes. Yeah. I don't know if many people remember that one. About 20 years ago, encryption, and this is kind of where our introduction comes from, encryption was classified as a munition, and as such, it was subjected to export controls. It was actually not legally possible to take good quality encryption and send it outside of the U.S., and so the EFF published these uh, or printed up these T-shirts that had the code to implement one of the stronger encryption algorithms. I forget which one it is at this point. And the top of it said, this T-shirt is a munition. Mm-hmm. And on the back, it had the various amendments to the Constitution that were violated by this particular concept and, and of course, crossed off in bright red. Yeah, well, I interacted with a lawyer who's now joined on to restore the fourth who made a a fairly decent argument that encryption restrictions on users are unconstitutional on second amendment grounds because because encryption is a munition yes yeah oh yeah all right so enough news for now you know what it's time for 
Patriots and Pariahs. So this week's Patriot is Representative Tulsi Gabbard from Hawaii. She's a Democratic congresswoman who also happens to be a veteran who deployed to Iraq twice. But she has been adamant about limiting surveillance to only cases with cause, i.e. without a warrant, rather than dragnet surveillance of the masses like we've seen. Uh, she made a speech to Congress to defend the civil liberties of Americans in the light of the NSA's revealed data collection. She stated that there's no evidence to date that the bulk data collection by the NSA has done anything to keep us safe. She said, quote, not a single taxpayer dollar should be used to fund a program that spies on innocent Americans violating the principles of liberty and freedom that so many have fought and given their lives for. But most notable, she introduced the SPOT Act in Congress, which was an attempt to strengthen the PCLOB's ability to oversee the intelligence community. Now, the PCLOB was something I'm not familiar with. It's the Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board, which I didn't even know he had. I'd heard the acronym before. So I don't know. I'm assuming since I hadn't heard much more about the SPOT Act that it didn't make much headway. But I think it gave way to the USA Freedom Act. But nonetheless, I think we can say that Representative Gabbard is quite a patriot and a protector of our freedoms. Yeah, I have to agree. And, and nobody can really question her patriotism having been you know, done to tours. You know, you, that's, that's something that, regardless of which side of the aisle you come from, you have to show some respect for. Today's pariah is James Comey, the director of the FBI, who has expressed the idea that the post-Snowden pendulum has swung too far. He denounced Apple's default encryption, saying that Apple is marketing something expressly designed for people to hold themselves beyond the law. Now, I have to point out that in light specifically of the programs that uh, Congresswoman Gabbard has been fighting against, that it's very clear that that's not the sole purpose of having a default encrypted device, wouldn't you say? No. Yeah, exactly. I mean... We're trying to protect ourselves, uh, okay, yes, to a certain extent, we're trying to protect ourselves from the people who are supposed to be protecting us and are not really doing that good of a job of it, apparently. I mean, it's no different than the Second Amendment. It's no different than guns. Right. Uh, you know, a gun can be used to defend your home and you and yours, rightfully, it could be used to stave off tyranny or it could be used to Mid perpetrate yeah. horrible crimes. Yes, yeah, absolutely. James Comey is also the guy who coined the phrase going dark, referring to an inability to access data even when it's warranted, uh, described encrypted phones and computers as being a threat to the rule of law. And here's the thing that really annoys me the most about him is I can see from his various writings and presentations that the guy does understand the technological limits which he's coming up against in, in dealing with cryptography. He almost gets it. He almost gets it, and this is so frustrating, but he still comes down on the wrong side. Mm. So that's that's today's pariah. All right, so Tulsi Gabbard, we thank you. And James Comey, redacted. Okay, so we're happy to be joined by Zucky Munyon from the Restore the Fourth Chapter in San Francisco. 
Zucky's the secretary of the board and one of the leaders uh, is also a entrepreneur and cryptography expert. And thanks for joining us today. And insofar as California in general tends to be a force to be reckoned with in general, as we know, California's fourth largest economy in the world when put up against nation states, I think it makes sense to compare Restore the Fort San Francisco as its own powerhouse because you guys have done so much for the cause. You've had a hand in one of the greatest citizens' pushbacks on the local level level against Homeland Security. You've gone against legislation out in California that attempted to ban encryption. Why don't you tell us a bit about Restore the Force San Francisco specifically, how it got formed. Frame it in the context of how Restore the Force started in 2013 in the wake of the Snowden revelations and how you guys got together out in the Bay Area. Yeah, so the story of Restore the Fourth in the Bay Area it started with this idea of organizing a protest for July 4th. The idea was to organize a protest directly in response to the Snowden revelation. And this was among the many protests that were happening in different cities in that year that made up the Restore the Fourth movement. So the beginning of Restore the Fourth was in the Bay Area. It came out of um, the idea of having nationwide protests to the Snowden revelations on July 4th of 2013. And I wasn't at the like first two or three meetings, which were before the protest. I got involved immediately afterwards. But basically, a group of people got together. They were like, we want to have a protest. They met with each other. They figured out the logistics of having a protest. And they got a protest together. And this happened all over the country. And the Bay Area has a very vibrant activist scene, a bunch of civil liberties organizations like the Electronic Frontier Foundation are organized out of here. And basically, what I would describe the sort of core constituency of Restore the Fourth is civil liberties-oriented people who want wanted to get more involved in sort of direct action in the promotion of the Fourth Amendment, civil liberties, and privacy. And for a long time had a model of meeting, uh, of having in-person meetings. The, the other parallel story, though, that has to be sort of told is you talked about how Restore the Fourth has been, with our Boston chapter, Restore the Fourth Bay Area has probably been the most continuously active Restore the Fourth chapter in the country. And so there was this parallel story that happened to what Restore the Fourth was doing, which was the emergence of the Oakland Privacy Working Group in Oakland, and that sort of grew out of Occupy. And basically, there is this sort of history in this Bay Area where Occupy and some aspects of, like, sort of the cypherpunk movement and the hacker movement, or I don't know whether you want to call hacker movement, but, like, the hacker community, were very closely tied together in sort of unexpected ways. And those ties continued into the emergence of both a broader privacy community in the Bay Area that has emerged and continue to this day. So you were able to build a coalition. Yeah, I mean, what is remarkable about the Bay Area, and to the extent that I know about it, this isn't true even in Boston, is to a very large extent, there's a set of overlapping communities in the Bay Area where there are enough people who are members of multiple communities that a unified Bay Area-wide privacy community that spans academic institutions, not-for-profits, for-profit companies, people who are interested in policy, people interested in security, 
people who are activists, people who are professionals. Basically, the most valuable thing that I do think Restore the Fourth played a role in making this happen is this was much more nascent in 2013 when we got started. And there was a lot more friction and distrust between different communities. And it's been this sort of long-running process of relationship building that has enabled these communities to form. And that's really been the focus of my activity as an activist is I have been focused on doing stuff, like actually moving the ball forward in a variety of different ways. But there's also just an enormous amount of work that has gone into maintaining relationships across different communities. And I think that that is work that would be really valuable to be replicated elsewhere. But it is difficult and it's time consuming and you definitely need the right people to do it. And I think you could argue that I've been uniquely able to play a role in making sure that happens because I have this extremely broad network. Now, in terms of activists actually doing stuff and getting stuff done, I say the San Francisco chapter has been a poster child for that. First and foremost, in conjunction with Oakland Privacy and and other groups, in my understanding, the DHS, the Department of Homeland Security, was attempting to set up a large operation in the category of total information awareness, and you guys were effectively able to push back on that as citizens on the local level. Can you tell me a bit about what Homeland Security was trying to accomplish in the Bay Area and how you guys were able to thwart that? Yeah, so there are these surveillance centers um, that have been set up in major metropolitan areas all over the country with Homeland Security funding called fusion centers. And the idea of fusion centers is they are they were a sort of this post 9-11 artifact where there's this idea of having sort of information gathering centers that could track suspicious people, um, coordinate with different agencies, et cetera, across state lines. But what has been ex- sort of a, a consistent pattern is the fusion center becomes sort of a central operational interface between the surveillance technologies of the local communities, of the local police department, whether it's their cameras, their license plate readers, everything. All of this data feeds into the fusion center and then becomes essentially becomes an asset for Homeland Security to do all kinds of different things with. So basically um, a databasing and data sharing that all kind of rolls back yeah, up to Homeland I mean, Security. I, I, the visual the visual you should have in your in the fusion center is like the operations room from the show 24. They basically okay. look the same. I don't know which one came first, but they're exactly like that visual of, you know, big screens and you know people sitting at desks and you know information coming in and and putting up, you know, street street camera aerial surveillance tracking people on license plates, tracking people, you know, getting audio feeds piped in, all of this stuff. So basically as Orwell as you could possibly get. Yeah, but yeah. So, but the, the mental model of what is a fusion center is, is like any, is, is, you know, Hollywood has, has been very, has gone crazy representing them in films. And that's what your mental model should be of what is a fusion center. And so, when the Homeland Security funds a fusion center, what they're doing is they're funding the screens, the building, the software uh, from a variety of different vendors. There are these defense contractors that come in, 
integrate all this stuff together and set up this place. They train the, the staff, and then there's the staff that's that's doing surveillance and intelligence work um, oriented for the local against you know sort of for or on top of or whatever of a local community for a period of time. Hmm. So basically, we have defense contractors that are uh, providing technology to spy on our own people, which was a concept yeah. that even 20 years ago uh, was foreign to the United States, I'd, I'd say. Yeah. With some no, notable exceptions, a, this, but. This is not something that really existed to uh, at a very widespread level from the uh, co-Intel Pro era all the way to the post 9-11 era. So anyways, we have a fusion center in San Francisco um, that is theoretically the fusion center for the entire Bay Area. But it, as a practical matter, actually had very little coverage into the city of Oakland. And Oakland is definitely sort of, it is the low, it has historically been the um, less white, more uh, sort of, uh, more economically disadvantaged uh, community uh, and more activist community in the Bay Area. Um, and so what Homeland Security was trying to do is they were trying to do take a fusion center that existed that was uh, the fusion center for the port of Oakland and actually expand that fusion center from the, from the port of Oakland to cover the entire city of Oakland. Now, um, that being the case, does that imply that Prior to this, uh, we're talking about a surveillance system that was mostly keeping an eye on the security of ships or what have you coming in and out of the port, and yeah. that was about it. Well, and so now well, we're going to the, surveilling not just that, but the people of Oakland at large. Yeah, um, and so that was so. This was called the Domain Awareness Center or the DAC, and you know. To a certain extent, the story of the DAC has been told in various places. Um, there are lots of videos. I don't want to go into too great detail there. But basically, the local Oakland community um, was able to organize an enorm in the, in the, during that summer after Snowden, uh, organize an enormous popular resistance to this idea of expanding the Domain Awareness Center. And there basically had never been in the history of fusion centers. There's never been um, anything like this kind of popular resistance. You know, we I used to go to the city council meetings with the rest of the activist community, and there, you know, there would be three, four hundred people there. It would go until one, two a.m. in the morning. Um, it would be very contentious. There's just a, in the activist in the history of activists in the Bay Area. There's probably nothing like that. But as I said, this story has been told a lot, and I kind of what I kind of want to get to is what I would say is the kind of the, the things that happened that don't normally happen. So the, the, the things that happen that don't normally happen are really two things. One was is that we not only like had this enormous burst of activist energy, but we have been able to sustain that energy now for almost three and a half years. And the second aspect of it I think that is unique is that the, the natural tendencies of activist communities to have, you know, internal conflict, different priorities, etc. We've been able to manage that whole process um, for so long that we are able to now, we now have these like enduring sets of relationships between different organizations and kinds of people. And there's this continuous ongoing communication. Mm. And so 
I mean, what's extraordinary about having a restore the fourth or about the the nature of being a privacy activist in the Bay Area is being a privacy activist is not a lonely thing anymore. There are usually between two and five privacy related events a week in the Bay Area. That's fantastic. There are um, so like th- this is a community that is constantly meeting with each other. And then there's, you know, that's just the sort of like, oh, we have like an actual public event that someone organized. Mm-hmm. So Restore the Fourth in the Bay Area, basically, we don't meet anymore. Like, we don't organize the meeting in the Bay Area um, very often anymore. Um, there's probably demand for it, but I, I'm, I'm too busy to actually organize anything. And like I said, for the most part, I just, you know, I see other affiliated people with Restore the Fourth at these privacy events that are happening on an ongoing basis all the time in the Bay Area. So um, this is almost a case of a step up and then step back. You, you kind of initiated and made things happen, and there was so much momentum and sus- it was sustainable that there are enough people in your coalition to kind of keep the energy going that it's, it doesn't really hurt that you don't necessarily have Restore the Fourth meetings. Yeah, and- but the sense in which Restore the Fourth does do things is we will independently or in an ad hoc coalition organize to do to deal with this to deal with a specific thing to move a specific issue forward, etc. And, and so you've since been like said, successful at that, and and I do want to touch on that. But can you tell me a bit about? I'll use the C word again: a coalition. You talk about all of these different groups and uh, communities within the Bay Area, that you were able to get to collaborate and continue to collaborate on privacy issues. Can you tell me how how you, you managed to do, do that without discord and make it sustainable? And then you can, can you also tell me logistically what you guys did on the local level with your local government to uh, kind of put up uh, a barrier against DHS? Yes. So if you say with DHS, like, what are all the things that we've done? We, you know, as a community, in terms of local activism, we have our privacy ordinance that we passed in Santa Clara that was directly in response to DHS funding to get a stingray for the county of Santa Clara. We successfully sort of stopped the DAC, and now we have a standing privacy commission in, in the city of Oakland, which is sort of a first-in-the-country kind of thing. And that standing privacy committee, pretty much every single thing, we've been organizing against the Urban Area Security Initiative, which is a sort of a big Bay Area um, militarized law enforcement training activity. We've been, so, yeah, I mean, so, like, we have all of these different threads. And how do you manage all of these different threads, which is different parts of the coalition have resources, interests, people who are engaged to, to work on different things. Basically, the I would say the, the biggest story of like how we logistically have been able to build this coalition is basically it's a combination of building relationships with the people in these di- in different organizations. And it's the work of not sort of insisting on setting the agenda really everywhere. You do 90% supporting other people's initiatives and agendas. You know, I would rather work on an issue that is really, that is privacy-centric, but maybe more important to some coalition of other groups than try to work on sort of what Restore the Fourth might most want to work on. 
and sort of allowing people to do their own things and focusing on supporting what those things are has been sort of a very effective strategy for us. So if you were to talk to a theoretical activist in another part of the country who's looking to put some limits on government and law enforcement surveillance in their locality, and they are looking to replicate your success, could you give me like almost like cliff notes, like a set so, of steps? Here's yeah, what you do. I think the cliff notes are extremely clear in terms of what it is that you would do. I would say the, the like step one is to identify what are the sort of activists or so, civil society. They don't even necessarily need to be activist organizations. You need to figure out what is your what is the civil society in your city already look like. And I would say that there has been a sea change um, since the election where pretty much if there is a civil society organization in your town or your city, there are people there who are concerned about privacy. And so once you identify those existing civil society organizations, what you can do is you can sort of bring the resources that Restore the Fourth can give you access to into that community, which is we could dis you can discuss in that community how in that whatever civil society organization. So you know when I say civil society, I'm like, are there people out there who are interested in women's rights, women's health care? Are there people out there who are interested in immigrant rights? Um, are there people who are um, concerned about whatever pretty much the concerns are you, so then you go to that community and you bring them crypto parties, privacy tech, and tools like our surveillance ordinance and things that they could, you know, and if you, you know, the surveillance ordinance want to engage on that, then they can get support from Restore the Fourth, from ACLU, from EFF. If you want to host a crypto party, we'll try to figure out what resources we can get to you to help with that. And basically, I think... What I would say is your first step to finding the other privacy people in your community is probably going to be finding the civil society people, the people who are already engaged in civil society of one kind or another in your community. Uh, is it fair to assume that the next step is to approach formal government, local government in some way and try to affect change is what you guys did along those lines? So the process for engaging with local government is actually pretty simple, but it is time consuming. And so we have one guy basically who's a big engine. For this. So the process is what you need to do is actually start watching your city council, your local city government agenda. You don't want to just simply go out and approach your government sort of on an ad hoc basis. That generally doesn't work and doesn't get any attention. The most powerful thing that you can do from a local government perspective, though, it, and this is the how every effort um, that Restore the Fourth has done on the local side has gotten. So when we first started, we had these naive ideas about, oh, well, we need to go talk to people in city government and like work with them to figure out what we can do on the privacy side. That was a total waste of time. What you do is... You watch your city council agenda for them to be buying, upgrading, or in any other way regulating new surveillance technology. I will guarantee you that if you watch your city council agenda for three months, something related to surveillance technology will show up on the agenda. And that is the moment when you can go 
and talk to, you go to that city council meeting, you go talk, and you talk about what has happened in the Bay Area and the progress that we're making in terms of the surveillance, you know, you know what we've done uh, to regulate surveillance technology of various kinds. Um, and you get that idea into the heads of city officials that maybe they shouldn't be rubber stamping whatever that technology is. Mm-hmm. Now, you guys actually got an ordinance passed. Can you actually name names? Can you specify the name of the ordinance and what it does and who sponsored it in your local city council? Yeah. So the history of the ordinance is, is, is again, so the ordinance, so the ordinance idea has two aspects. On one hand, the ordinance idea is this sort of guerrilla idea that Restore the Fourth came up with. Basically, we have a Restore the Fourth, the National Restore the Fourth has a legislative working group call where we would talk about surveillance legislation at national, state, and local level. And in those calls, we um, we came up with this idea of having a local surveillance regulation ordinance. So we worked on it. We, we, we looked at all these different example ordinances, et cetera. We, draft, we came up with language that we liked, et cetera. And then when we kind of had this idea together, we went and we looked and we started bringing it to other civil liberties organizations, just asking for feedback. And what we found is that ACLU of Northern and Southern California had actually been thinking along very similar lines, and there was an opportunity to synthesize our ideas. Mm. So we made that happen. And that couldn't have happened if it hadn't been for all of the previous times in which we had supported, helped, and worked with ACLU. Mm-hmm. And when we were, when when that synthesis happened, pretty much right while that was going on, we saw on the county board of supervisors agenda that they were tr- being asked to approve Homeland Security funding to buy a Stingray, which is a cell phone location and intercept device. Mm-hmm. And so we went with the ACLU, lots of other organizations. We objected buying the Stingray. And Supervisor Joe Simidian um, has been in all levels of California government. He's had a long career in California politics, and he's been always an advocate for privacy. And so he was a big proponent of regulating the Stingray. Um, and in the process of regulating the Stingray, we didn't actually end up buying the Stingray. And then when the ordinance, the, the sort of model ordinance was done, Supervisor Simidian was very committed to this idea of Santa Clara being the first place to make it a law. But that process of from when we killed the stingray to when we passed the ordinance was 18 months. Okay, so a good deal of work has to go into this. Yeah, it's pretty, it's been, a, it's, it's sort of weird now not going to the Santa Clara Council once <laughs> a month because we did it for for more was, than a year. It became a part <laughs> of your life. <laughs> but yeah, and that's the process of, but that process of, we observe that there's surveillance equipment that's about to be purchased. Let's go have a conversation about that. Let's mm-hmm. try and find out if anyone else in that city council is receptive to our concerns. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then if they are, introduce this idea of, of having an, uh, a prospective ordinance that would govern all future equipment purchases. Okay. So those of you who were involved with Restore the Fourth San Francisco on those endeavors, sounds like you've kept at it. And you've gone beyond your local common council and such 
and made some trips to Sacramento, the capital of California, and had some influence on legislation that was popping up at the state level. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, um, we've done a number of things at the state level. It's it's sort of an interesting. So some of the things that Restore the Fourth did almost on our own. So the, in 2013, we had we actually passed a law that would prohibit California government from cooperating with the federal government if it engaged in any surveillance activities uh, that were ruled by either California or uh, federal courts to be illegal. I honestly expected that law to be it was re- it was significantly gutted um and I was expecting it never to amount to anything but actually in the post Trump world it may end up actually being a useful piece of law I don't know but that was like our first experience lobbying for a bill in Sacramento and we built on that experience to lobby for and against other laws so one of the things that happened very recently was there was an effort to bring first but first was an encryption ban and then sort of mutated from being an encryption ban to being a fine or a tax on using encryption. So I think the, I think the encryption ban law is a, is a good example of why it's helpful to have a restored fort. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've had similar laws brought out here, which is no surprise because often when it comes to legislation, as goes California, as goes New York, as goes the country, or vice versa, the two big coastal states seem to be groundbreaking in their legislation, it's, but whether it be, you know, good or bad. It's not just that. Um, there is a, there is a coordinated um, effort that runs out of the National District Attorneys Association ah. to try to undermine um, the the availability of encryption in society. Um, yeah. And uh, so these laws, which we've seen pop up in California, New York, Louisiana, other places, are part of that push. And mm-hmm. so... And I would think that it's part of kind of a, a strategy that we see popping up in general that what what interests can't necessarily accomplish on the federal level, they will kind of go around, do a roadshow and attempt to accomplish the same thing with local legislation. And in a sense, it becomes a game of whack-a-mole. But that seems to be a very prevalent technique, and I've observed it in many different instances. Like, for instance, uh, out here in Albany, the capital of New York, we recently had a county proposal to make it illegal or make it a felony even, I believe, for you to turn away from a checkpoint at the airport if you were selected for secondary inspection. And when we confronted the sheriff here about that law, we found that uh, he said he was backing away from it because it was so much public outcry, but that he was feeling pressure from the Department of Homeland Security to get this law passed. And uh, it almost echoes, it's a different area of legislation, but it almost echoes what you're describing, where a federal law enforcement on the federal level is almost putting pressure on local or state legislation bodies or law enforcement bodies to do their bedding. Yeah. So like this was happening and we talked to our counterparts in other organizations and um, both at, in, on the tech company side and on the bigger civil liberties organization side, they didn't really want to come out too strongly really? against this law because of the feeling that it would grant 
it would just provide more attention to something that was just not going to go anywhere. One of the huh. nice things that we have in California is that we have a constitutional right to privacy ah. um, that goes be- that is beyond the federal right to privacy. Yeah. And as a result, we actually have privacy committees in the state legislature. And anything that happens in state law that has an impact on privacy has to go through the privacy committees. Ah. And the privacy committees are, are very privacy friendly and are fairly skeptical of law enforcement. So at least in California, it's pretty difficult to move to see something like this moving forward. So they were right that it didn't have any chance to really go forward. But I thought it was a mistake not to take the opportunity to really educate the privacy committee on why these encryption bans are unworkable, harmful, and terrible. Mm-hmm. And so we actually were able to go up as a, as a Restore the Fort chapter. Three of us went up to Sacramento. We testified it during the hearing. And we were able, actually, because we were all technologists and there were literally no other technologists in the room, explain why an encryption ban is just a horrible idea. Hmm. And it sounds like you were effective in making that case. Yeah. Um, I do think it was effective. I do think it was far more memorable um, for the members of the council to be like, oh, this is not just, you know, like, of course this is not going to go anywhere. We know the tech industry hates this. Um, It's not going to go anywhere. But to start getting a sense of why this is so disastrous. Yeah. And so, yeah. Um, that was another op- uh, example of an opportunity. And, you, you know, the way we do this on a logistical level is we find, you know, we, somebody, we keep an eye on what's going on in the legislature. We have increasingly good relationships with various people in the staffs of, of people in the legislature. So they'll email us. We'll see that these bills are coming forward. We'll email around. We'll organize a bunch of us to get in the car and drive up to Sacramento. Mm-hmm. If we're up there, we try to make get meetings with the staff if we can. Um, people are usually pretty willing to meet with us. And pretty much anyone can do this. Um, mm-hmm. And and that's something we've been to- trying to reiterate to our listeners is that, you know, you hear the L word lobbying and you automatically assume it's this exclusive activity of corporate interests. And you forget that lobbying is literally just going and talking to your representatives and you know, and their staffs. Yeah. It's basically going and talking to staff. Because the representatives themselves don't really do anything. Yeah. Um, for, the, <laughs> for the most part, yeah. you just go and you meet with staff. Yeah. Um, and that's what's going on. But if you're willing to make the trip, you can do this. Matters. Yeah. As, as a pra- as, if you're willing to make the trip and you are willing to email around and get on people's schedules or knock on doors and see if they have time, they mm-hmm. can give you 10 minutes. Um, you can be pretty effective. And it is so unusual to have sort of regular citizens meeting uh, with anyone in, city, in state level government that especially about as sort of esoteric an issue as privacy, it's pretty high impact to do this. Um, mm. You would be shocked at how effective it is. Hmm. So you mentioned the tech companies and civil liberties groups being notable to both of them. And did that imply that there was some cooperation between more traditional industry lobbyists and citizen lobbyists like yourselves? It's not cooperation because trying to cooperate and coordinate is is somewhat of a fool's errand. Um, there's just so much politics inside of any of these organizations that trying to convince them, but making them aware that you're planning on being, you know, like we were in a position where we could make the tech companies aware that we were planning on going and what we were planning on saying. Okay. And 
you know, it, it just creates a level of familiarity. Yeah. So to a certain extent, just the intermingling, the interaction creates a, a mild coalition. Yeah. Um, I think that's exactly the, 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 the working strategy of Restore the Fourth Barrier. Is mm-hmm. these low-intensity coalitions where okay. it, we make each other aware of stuff we're going to do, we support each other when when support is asked for, um, and and we will criticize other members of the coalition when it doesn't, and we don't try to, to move in lockstep with everybody else. Every organization has its own culture and everything, but we are in this probably for the for a long time together, and um, so we do try to like operate as a community. Now, speaking of uh, intermingling between uh, industry advocates and then citizens, you know, and a- activists, um, and also you dropped the word culture, um, that leads me to something that's been examined by folks in Restore the Fourth lately, which is kind of a- an idea that we might be, for lack of a better term, the NRA of the Fourth Amendment. And insofar as you know, we see uh, what that organization has done for Second Amendment issues uh, in terms of how they, they do seem to act as a bridge between gun manufacturers and gun enthusiasts. What is your thought on that idea and what we can do towards that idea, but for the Fourth Amendment? So what, what I think is notable about the NRA model is the NRA is basically tiny. I believe they have like somewhere between three and four million members. Mm-hmm. Um, and but so the NRA a notable minority tiny, or a yeah, vocal minority. Yeah, they're in a vocal extreme minority. But they do a couple of things that I think is unique. Is one is they're a community that is notable as single issue voters. Mm-hmm. And that the the power of being a single issue voter being that you can saying that you're willing to endorse Democrats, Republicans, other, or, you know, based entirely on their position on your issue and advocate entirely from that focus, I think gives a minority who is enough to really effectively defend a constitutional right mm-hmm. um, and is really the only approach that seems to work. And, you know, the Fourth Amendment kind of needs that. We have fantastic privacy advocates uh, on, in both parties, who seem to disagree you know, on every, we have some of the, in California. We have one of the most far right politicians in California, Daryl Issa, has an A plus on the Restore the Fourth score, mm-hmm. uh, congressional scorecard, and we have one of the far, most far left California politicians, Barbara Lee, has an A plus on the Restore the Fourth scorecard. And from the point of view of Restore the Fourth, those are both equally good candidates. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, something I also find notable about the gun rights community and the NRA is that a lot of what unifies them, in my opinion, seems to revolve around a culture. And they seem to have a shared culture of enthusiasm for firearms. But deeper than that, it may be that, you know, this is something that they grew up with for generations uh, on that count, I, I feel like, you know, they have a good 100, 150 years on us, being that a lot of our issues, their response to uh, technological innovations that have come about in very recent times. And 
our culture is kind of new. I mean, uh, I didn't grow up shooting guns or going hunting, but I did spend Saturday mornings punching programs in Compute Gazette magazine into my Commodore 64 with my dad. What do you think our cohesive culture is? I mean, up till now, I think the closest we had was to call it a hacker culture. But A, that's kind of a dirty word in a lot of outside circles and perhaps doesn't help us. But I also don't think it describes us well now because you have journalists, you have activists, you have fanboys for lack, you know, people who aren't hackers, but just love technology. And, you know, I think when you and I were at the Hope Conference this year, when I just scanned the room, you just have this feeling of like, this is my gun show. But that said, like, what is our community and what is our culture, in your opinion, behind this I mean, this is, this is, I think, perfectly on display. Um, So I struggle with this idea, with this very question, I think, too, which is we have, so we are a culture because we, we, there is this shared way of thinking about the world of being suspicious of government power, aware of the way in which technology is changing the relationship between governments and people. And we are using, and we are conscious of that. And that consciousness is probably the thing that brings us all together. But where that consciousness comes from and how it manifests comes from a lot of different places. So I think that our our culture is still being defined to a large extent. There are sort of people who think like us that are in communities like the people who go to Hope and DEF CON. But the doors of that community have been, you know, expanding dramatically. The number of different kinds of people from different walks of life who are coming to those environments and trying to figure out where they fit in in this larger community of people. Because I do think that, like, once you start thinking about the world this way, once you start asking the question of, okay, how much can I trust my devices and how are are my devices being used against me by my government? Uh, how is technology being used against me by my government? Once you kind of cross that line and start thinking about the world that way, you do need to find a group of like-minded people. And that is why this culture is expanding so quickly but also it's changing its shape and form. So it behooves me to just check in with you on current events that are going on. And I'd say in the privacy community and crypto community, the notable thing this week, obviously, is the the Rule 41 ruling. I don't know if that's the right word, but as of Thursday or Friday, I believe, we kind of have this power granted to the FBI to effectively hack into any machine they they want anywhere i guess that's how my brief understanding is about it but maybe you can fill me in a bit about it more yeah so rule 41 is rule 41 of the federal rules of criminal procedures and rule 41 relates to the uh ways in which the rules around which warrants are granted and the, the ways in which the federal rules of criminal procedure are changed and the, uh, the ways of the, uh, the federal rules of criminal procedure are, are sort of like the rule book by which judges um, and prosecutors sort of figure out how they are going to go of doing criminal trials and prosecutions, etc. 
And so Rule 41 is related to how warrants are granted. So anonymity technologies have posed a challenge to law enforcement, uh, specifically from the point of view of Rule 41, because you don't know what jurisdiction to go to to apply for a warrant against a computer where you don't know where that computer is. And so when the federal government has tried to get warrants for Tor users, the search warrants that they've gotten to place malware and other de-anonymizing technologies on computer users who have been targeted by these warrants, to put malware on your computer, federal judges have been pretty consistent in this country that you need to get a warrant first. If they have reason to have a good understanding of like where you live, they will go to where the jurors federal court for wherever you live and get a warrant for a search warrant against you to deploy malware against you. If you, they don't know where you are, where to do, where to get that warrant has been extremely unclear and been a problem. What the change to Rule 41 is, is now if they, if they cannot easily determine without deploying some sort of investigative technology, some sort of malware, they will get the warrant for the malware now from anywhere. So the Rule 41 change is basically, it, you could, you know, depending on what warrant, what the particularities of the warrants are, um, computer users anywhere in the world could find themselves targeted by U.S. government malware as part of a search warrant that was granted by any judge anywhere. Mm. And does that give rise to a situation that, that youngsters have known to use for years, which if mommy says no, go ask daddy, would you basically, if you get denied by a given judge, could you just go to another judge somewhere else? And What will inevitably happen now is that the prosecutors will find the judges that ask the fewest questions and push back the least on these warrants, and you will see pretty much every single warrant for Tor and other anonymity technology users yeah. um, going through one or two of these judges. So I would yeah. expect that we are about to see an extremely permissive environment. So you end up having these surveillance superstars in the judicial system, basically. These are the guys that go to that the, they'll give you whatever yep. you want. Fantastic. So yep. legally, what mechanism allowed this? Was it that a law was passed or that a law restricting this lapsed? The, so the federal rules of criminal procedure, the way in which if I'm, I'm doing this from memory, so I may be wrong about the details, but roughly the procedure is that the Department of Justice goes and asks the Supreme Court to approve the changes that they have made. And if a majority of Supreme Court justices approve those changes, then Congress has some period of time that just expired uh, for this to reject the changes through passing a law. But they do not have to actively affirmatively act for those changes to take place. Okay. So they failed to do so? Yes. They okay. failed to do so. And so now Rule 41 changes are in effect. Okay. All right, so it's a and, great, brave new world where... <laughs> I mean, and, you know, the, 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 the world in which we're, what we'll, we're going to experience is, has sort of been very upfront. So I think just within this last week, there was a new exploit against the Tor browser uh, mm -hmm. that, was being, that was found to be used in the wild. When people, tr we don't know what the origin of that exploit is, but some of the forensic analysis on the internet seems that this exploit was first being delivered from a child pornography website on the Tor network 
um, that was accessible within Tor. Um, and then from there, it, once people reverse engineered that particular instance of the exploit, it just spread all over the internet and was attacking Firefox and Tor users all over the internet. And so it's not a terrible idea to find some way of granting warrants uh, for searches of users where you don't know their jurisdiction. Mm -hmm. uh, but you would it would have been the right thing to do would have been to fix the forum shopping problem, to fix, come up with some way of making it so that it isn't just a small permissive judges who end up issuing all of these warrants. Mm -hmm. And the second thing that would have been needed to do was we need to have a broader conversation. We, we desperately in society right now need to have a broad conversation about government hacking and collateral damage consequences um, and how we want the government to use the power of this power to hack into devices. All right. Well, thanks so much for summing that up, because I think a lot of our listeners likely did not have a, a good picture of what this meant and what the implications were and how it came to be. Uh, I know I did. And it's been great to hear about all of your successes out in California. And I hope that we can replicate those successes throughout the country. And I appreciate you joining us, Zucky Munyan from Restore the Fourth, San Francisco. Thanks for taking the time out for us. Yeah, thank you very much. Uh, bye. Well, that's another episode in the can. We hope you enjoyed episode three of Privacy Patriots, the official podcast of Restore the Fourth. Thanks for listening, and we hope to have you join us for the next episode. So head on over to www.privacypatriots.org where you can get further connected with us on Reddit, Twitter, and Facebook. Keep watching the watchers and stay tuned as we give you the information you need to keep your information your own.